0: There's a lot going on for a lot of the people in our church today, and a lot going on for Pastor Daniel and his family, and Wood and his family, and so I'm grateful this morning to step in for them, give them a little bit of relief if they've dealt with it all over the past few weeks, and I want to remind you that October coming up is Pastor Appreciation Month, and it's a great time to show how much they mean to you. And don't forget also to show your appreciation to their wives. Sometimes they're forgotten, but they work just as hard. They have a lot to deal with as well. So don't forget them, especially during Pastor Appreciation Month in October. I want to encourage you on that. Again, I'm grateful to come before you and proclaim the word. And I don't want to let you down. I don't want to let God down. So will you bow with me in prayer as we get started this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today I want to ask a very simple question. I want to ask you, what kind of disciple are you? What kind of disciple are you? Perhaps you're content with where you're at. I hope that's not the case. I hope that you continually want to grow closer and closer to Jesus. Maybe you're feeling conflicted. You believe, but you doubt. Maybe you're concerned. You believe, but you wonder what others will think if they found out. Now, the Gospel of John is my favorite book of the Bible, and I think the Apostle John who wrote it is a genius, and his gospel never stops impressing me the more I learn about it. And one of the techniques that John uses is to tell stories over multiple chapters. For example, in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralytic. But the paralytic runs off and tattles on Jesus, only two verses later. It isn't until chapter 9 that we get the story where Jesus heals a blind man. And we realize that John has given us the bad example in chapter 5, and four chapters later, the good example. The blind man has never seen Jesus, and yet he comes to Jesus and defends defends Jesus against the Pharisees. And it's possible that John is doing the same thing with the Bible character that I want us to look at today. We're about to read about a man named Nicodemus. And the first time we meet Nicodemus, he doesn't seem to get what Jesus is saying. In the very next chapter after this story of Nicodemus, a Samaritan woman gets it and convinces the whole town to come out and listen to Jesus. Nicodemus doesn't understand, and then he disappears from the story for four chapters, only to pop up again in chapter 7. And then again he disappears, this time for 12 chapters, only to pop up again at the end of chapter 19 in the Gospel of John. And so what I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to share the story of Nicodemus with you. I want to look at his journey. And I want to look at the three times the Bible talks about Nicodemus and see what's going on. And I want us to see what Nicodemus' story means for us today. And so we need to start by reading John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So John chapter 2 verse 24 tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to man, Because he knew our hearts. He knew what was inside of us. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we get a great example of why. We get introduced to a man that illustrates this point that Jesus is making. We get introduced to Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, kind of like the great Jewish Supreme Court. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus belonged to a group that was generally conservative, generally hard to convince, generally middle class, though some, like Nicodemus himself, were fairly wealthy, and who upheld not just the Old Testament Scripture, but the oral law and tradition. So we hear a lot about the Pharisees' hypocrisy, how they behaved towards sins, but most were, in fact, earnest men of God who were seeking the truth and loved their Scripture. They were a lot like us today. And that's the kind of Pharisee that Nicodemus was. And right off the bat we learn something about Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night. Now, just because Nicodemus went to Jesus at night doesn't mean he was afraid or embarrassed to be seen talking with Jesus. In fact, it was actually pretty common to spend the evening hours in theology discussion. I'd love that if that tradition continued today, if we just spent our evenings talking about the Bible. And perhaps the evening hours were simply when Nicodemus could get a hold of Jesus away from all the crowds to speak with him. So we don't need to think that Nicodemus was a coward just because he came to Jesus at night. But for the gospel of John, night is normally associated not just with physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. And Nicodemus was willing to come to Jesus may mean that he recognized that something was missing. Nicodemus valued spiritual matters but there was something missing in his heart. And he may have been hoping that Jesus could explain that missing piece to him. See, Nicodemus wasn't a coward, but he was curious. Nicodemus was a curious disciple. And maybe that's the kind of disciple you are this morning. You're not a believer yet, but you've heard about Jesus. You've heard about this whole Christianity thing. And you have some questions. You're just starting to dive in. And that's great. Ask those questions. When Pastor Daniel gets back, when Pastor Wood is here, the leaders of the church will be more than happy to talk with you. They'll take your questions seriously. They'll walk alongside of you and help you find the answers. And that's what Nicodemus is doing when he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus has picked up on an important truth. Jesus has come from God. And by calling Jesus rabbi, he's establishing that Jesus is the teacher and that he is the learner. He's coming with a spirit of humility, but he also reveals in this statement that his curiosity is not yet belief. He's coming to Jesus because of the signs he's done, and Jesus is about to show him that's not enough. It's not enough to see Jesus as a great rabbi, as a great teacher. A few weeks ago when I preached, I quoted C.S. Lewis, and I want to go back to C.S. Lewis again, because C.S. Lewis explains that one thing that Jesus cannot be is a great teacher, if that's the complete answer. Lewis says Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. He has to be one of those three things. Because he claims to be sent from God. He claims I and the Father are one. If he's right, he's Lord of heaven and earth. If he's wrong, he's either crazy and therefore not a great teacher, or he's intentionally trying to deceive us. He's a liar and therefore not a great teacher. It's not enough to see Jesus as a great teacher, he's either Lord or he's not. And it's not enough to come to Jesus because of the signs. Yes, we should praise Jesus. We should praise the Lord for what he has done in our lives. But sign-seeking isn't enough either. We can't treat Jesus like Santa. Jesus explains this truth to Nicodemus starting in chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus' answer throws Nicodemus off. Now, Nicodemus isn't just a curious disciple. Nicodemus is a confused disciple. Nicodemus is a confused disciple. And if we are like Nicodemus, and we take Jesus to literally be saying, you must be born again, I think we would be confused as well. Even for those of us who understand this metaphor, we might not really get what Jesus is trying to say. The idea of being born again has actually come into our culture in many ways. Some of you might know my favorite college football team is the Tennessee Volunteers. And 17 of the past 18 years, we have lost to Florida. And they played Florida yesterday. And after, four, after three quarters, we were up by 17 points. And with 17 seconds left, we were up by five points, and they had the ball. But we have a new coach. In a sense, they've been born again with the new coach's identity. They got to start all over again. And for only the second time in 19 years, we won against Florida. And I'm very excited about that. They did not lose the game like they were just about to. They were born again. Or maybe you could think of a business filing for bankruptcy, getting a new CEO. And it could be said that the business is born again. A college like Midwestern Baptist Seminary down in the city had to be completely born again and pull itself out of a bad place when President Allen joined the school. A church can feel born again when it remodels, maybe with new carpet or new paint. The problem with that kind of being born again is that a football team is still a football team. It might be better, but it's still a football team. A business is still a business, a school is still a school, and the church building is still just a building. What Jesus says goes further than that. His message is much more radical than that. The phrase being born again can also mean be born from above or be born from heaven what Jesus is saying is that to enter the kingdom, we need to be born not physically, but born into a new spiritual life. In fact, this new birth is nothing short of a total transformation. One author puts it this way, we need to become not improved caterpillars, but spiritual butterflies. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 puts it this way, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When a person is born from heaven, born from above, they are radically changed. And Nicodemus doesn't get that. He's still confused. In fact, when Nicodemus heard these words, he may have even gotten offended by Jesus. Because in Judaism, the only time you use the phrase born again is when a Gentile becomes a full believer. In a way, Jesus was accusing Nicodemus of being not Jewish, of being a Gentile. Nicodemus may have even gotten angry at this point. He was born a Jew. He knew the scripture. He was already part of the covenant people. Sure, tell the Romans they must be born again, not the Jews. But he was still missing something. He still needed to let the Spirit from above miraculously transform and remake his life. And maybe that's the kind of disciple you are today. You've gotten some answers for your questions but you don't quite understand, or your answers only lead to more questions. Perhaps you're like Nicodemus too, and that the Holy Spirit hasn't taken a hold of you yet, hasn't transformed you. In church ease, we call these people unregenerate. We don't mean that as an insult, at least most of the time. What we mean it to say is that Christ's power hasn't taken over your life yet and made you new yet. And if that's the case for you today, let me proclaim the gospel to you. Let me proclaim the good news to you. Jesus Christ, God become man, died on the cross for your sins, for your salvation, forgiving you all your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. And Jesus died on that cross, and in so doing, he defeated death once and for all and enabled us to live with him forever in paradise. And he's coming back to set all things right once again, to judge the living and the dead, and to once again be with his people and to reign over us. And if you want that new kind of life, if you hope for all things to be set right, if you hope for that perfectly just and yet merciful king to reign, then I urge you to accept Jesus today. Receive him. Become his disciple. It's okay if there are some things that are confusing. You don't have to have a perfect understanding to follow him. If that were the case, this building would be pretty much empty. But take the first step and accept him. Talk with Wood, talk with the leaders of this church, and they will guide you if you want to make a decision today. But let's go back to Nicodemus. Nicodemus still didn't get what Jesus was saying. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And that's it. Nicodemus disappears from the story. At first curious and now confused and now gone from the story with no resolution. But he reappears in chapter 7. And since chapter 3, some things have changed. And turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 40. John chapter 7, verse 40. Some things have changed for Nicodemus. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? In the Gospel of John, and Nicodemus is now speaking up for Jesus. But verse 50 reveals Nicodemus's heart. He was one of them, it says. He was still a Pharisee, still part of the Jewish community, yet now he's speaking up in Jesus's defense. I think Nicodemus has moved from being a curious disciple and a confused disciple to being a covert disciple, a secret believer. He's willing to speak up and defend Jesus if necessary, but he isn't ready to radically commit to Jesus. It may be that he fears losing respect, losing influence, or being kicked out of his office. But for now, he's only a disciple in secret, a covert disciple. And his response to the Pharisees is completely true. The law of the Old Testament does require a hearing. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 says this, Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is God's. Yet just the mere mention of the law that the Pharisees were supposed to know and follow sends them into a temper tantrum. They start attacking Nicodemus personally. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, the funny thing is that Nicodemus knew the scriptures. He could have pointed out that, yes, in fact, Jonah, the prophet, came from Galilee. Maybe Nahum, or even Elijah, the greatest prophet of them all in Jewish tradition. But Nicodemus keeps his mouth shut. He knows that when people start to distort facts in order to make arguments or to defend their biases, there's not much you can do. To counter them, see, the Pharisees think that no one else is a believer, but they're missing the dissension in their own ranks. When Nicodemus brings up a point of law, they snap at him. It's the oldest trick in the debate book. If you can't form an actual response, you resort to ridicule, you attack the speaker. They ask, Are you on his side? And Nicodemus doesn't actually answer. He doesn't say, yes, I am. So is that the kind of disciple that you are? Because unfortunately, I think that's where a lot of Christians are today. Sure, we'll speak up if someone is attacking our faith or mocking the church, but otherwise, we look a lot like the world. Among born-again Christians, the divorce rate is 32%. Among non-believers, it's 33%. 45% of Christians have admitted that they have committed some sexually immoral act, And 23% of Christians admit having extramarital intercourse. Fraud and embezzlement are major problems within the church. And even if you would never even think of stealing from a store, how much time do you steal from companies that you work for by piddling around on Facebook or just generally slacking off or quiet quitting? We as Christians can be just as greedy, just as hateful, just as idolatrous as the lost. We probably don't have a problem going to a temple and worshiping Buddha, but we may worship our jobs, our money, our cars, our social status. Some worship at Kauffman Stadium, some at Arrowhead, or on the golf course. In other words, maybe some of us aren't even better caterpillars. We're just plain old caterpillars. and We're not truly transformed into the new creation that Christ offers Being a covert disciple is a step in the right direction, but it's still not enough. Fortunately, the story of Nicodemus is not over yet. Turn one more time to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. We're skipping very far ahead in the story, and Jesus has already died. And John tells the story this way, in John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the final time that Nicodemus appears in all of the New Testament. In a sense, it's his coming out moment. He comes out of the closet, and he's no longer a secret believer, but a fully committed disciple. He is no longer curious and confused, no longer covert, but convicted, convinced, and committed. See, most bodies were left on crosses to rot or to be plucked at by birds, wild dogs. Others were simply thrown into ditches. Not only that, but Romans would not permit a body to be taken off a cross if it was a case of treason. So because Joseph and Nicodemus have no family claims to the body, if Pilate sees this case as a case of treason, then it would be dangerous even asking. They would be associating themselves with a known criminal. Fortunately, Pilate already understands that Jesus is innocent. But the Romans aren't the only ones that Nicodemus and Joseph have to deal with. They also have to deal with the Jewish customs. The Sabbath is coming. Matthew reports in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 through 50, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The ninth hour is about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and the Sabbath begins at sundown. Now, I don't know when sundown occurred 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, but recently around here, sundown has occurred about 7 o'clock. By the end of October, it'll be close to 6, and on the shortest days of the year in September, it'll be before 5. But if we just call it 7, that leaves from the time Jesus died to the time Sabbath started, 4 hours. 4 hours to get permission to move the body, to wrap it, to bind it, according to Jewish funeral customs. Not only that, but there's something even more significant about to take place. The Passover feast and festival. And this celebration is not like any other Sabbath. It's a huge deal, the biggest celebration of the year. Numbers 19, verse 11, says this Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with water on the third day, and on the seventh day they will be clean. Now, being unclean doesn't mean necessarily that someone has sinned or done something wrong. In this case, it was about ceremonial cleanliness. But if someone is ceremonially unclean, they cannot participate in worship with the community. In other words, by giving Jesus this burial, Nicodemus and Joseph are publicly identifying with Jesus, and they're giving up their ability to participate in the Passover. They can no longer participate in the most holy moment of the Jewish year. They wouldn't do that unless they were fully committed. They're so committed, they're willing to separate themselves from their old community in order to join Jesus's new one. They don't even know the good news that Jesus is going to rise from the dead three days later. We get to know that. We know that Christ is risen. And in that resurrection, Jesus proved that Nicodemus's discipleship was not misplaced, that he himself was the fulfillment of the scriptures. He himself was the fulfillment of the temple, of the feasts, and of the Passover, that Commitment would be vindicated in the resurrection. But they didn't know that. And they were still utterly committed to Jesus. Not only did Nicodemus sacrifice his ability to participate in the Passover, but he brought 70 pounds, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. That's a ridiculous amount. And what it shows is how Nicodemus viewed Jesus. See, kings of Judah in the past were given burials, In garden tombs. They were buried in new tombs, ones that hadn't been used before, and they were given excessive amounts of spices. What Nicodemus is doing through his actions is saying for all who are paying attention, Jesus Christ is king. Nicodemus had gone from being a curious and confused disciple to a covert disciple. a fully convinced and committed disciple, declaring through his actions that Jesus Christ is king, and we should follow in his footsteps. Nicodemus started out as a bad example. Here, though, he's our good example. In John chapter 3, he was bad by the end of the story. He has shown how committed he is. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, 4 through 7. This is still the apostle John speaking in a letter. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that's Jesus. Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, as Jesus, is righteous. You and I can keep on sinning, show ourselves to be unchanged by what Jesus has done for us. We can still live as caterpillars among caterpillars. Or we can show our commitment by practicing righteousness, just like Nicodemus did. Because committed disciples, disciples like Nicodemus was at the end of the story, practice righteousness. They practice righteousness by declaring with their actions that Jesus is king of their lives. Well, what does that look like today? I want to offer three areas in our life that we can practice righteousness in. And I promise I'll have you guys home by halftime of the game today. The first is this. Committed disciples practice righteousness in their homes. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The author of Hebrews here says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Open your home to those in need. When a storm comes through town and someone doesn't have power, What does it cost you to invite them over, do a load of laundry, let them have a nice warm shower, just a little bit of extra on your water bill for the month? But that's not all this passage says. It says, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Let it be undefiled. If committed discipleship starts in home, then it starts with how you love your spouse. If you can't even love your spouse like Christ, then how can you show world that kind of love. Love your spouse. Don't let your eyes wander. Don't let your thoughts stray. Guard your heart. But committed discipleship isn't just about how you act in the home. It's about how you act with others as well. Listen to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. For 11 chapters, Paul has taught sound doctrine and truth, and now he's turning to how do we put that into practice And in my Bible, this section is simply called Marks of a True Christian. It could easily be Marks of a Committed Christian. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The best example that I can think of for this passage are two different communities dealing with loss after a school shooting. In Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, in 2006, a man stormed into a schoolhouse and shot 10 young girls, five of whom died. Now, Nickel Mines was an Amish community, and the world was shocked that someone would do such a thing because they know how peaceful the Amish are. But how did the Amish community react? They raised and donated money to support the shooter's widow and her children. They didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They visited the shooter's family to comfort the shooter's family, even when they were going through their own grief. Amish mourners outnumbered the non-Amish at his funeral. More recently, victims of the Charleston shooting had an opportunity to speak at a bond hearing, speaking directly to the shooter. They refused to turn to anger. Instead, they offered forgiveness and prayer. One of the relatives said simply, we have no room for hating. I hope and pray that you have no room for hating. I hope you never have to offer that kind of forgiveness, but if those situations can spark such compassion, such care in the face of unimaginable tragedy, certainly we can offer compassion to those who are simply rude to us, who beat us out for the job, who talk behind our back. We can show compassion to those on the other side of the political aisle. We can show compassion to those who disagree with us. Yes, even Chargers fans. We have to commit to Jesus fully in our homes, with others, and finally in the world. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, how do we actually go about making disciples? 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, makes the answer clear. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The way we act towards the world in order to turn them into disciples is by doing good deeds. And I'm not talking about simply being nice or kind, because even atheists can be moral people. And I'm not talking about earning your way to salvation, earning your way to heaven, because that only comes through Jesus. But I'm talking about doing the kinds of deeds that Jesus did. We might not be able to multiply loaves and fishes, but we can certainly feed the hungry. We might not be able to make the blind see and the deaf hear, but we can show compassion for the sick and the dying. We can treat them honorably and not cast them aside. We might not be able to instinctively know people's thoughts and exactly what they need, but we can be compassionate listeners, be a calm presence in their lives, and hear what they're saying. And even when we don't know what to say, we can just be with them. What I'm saying is this, just coming to a church on Sunday or saying a few prayers over a meal doesn't make you a disciple. I can sit in the garage all I want, but that doesn't make me a car. Even being a covert disciple, speaking up and defending Jesus doesn't help much if we look like the rest of the world the rest of the time. We need to be committed disciples like Nicodemus, even when we know the cost might be high. We need to be disciples in our home, with others, and wherever we go in the world. And that's how we practice righteousness and declare with our actions that Jesus Christ is King. Will you pray with me? Lord, be King in our lives and in the world today. Help us to faithfully follow you in obedience each and every day. Convict our hearts And convince us of your love and your holiness and your mercy and your goodness. And let us shine your light everywhere we go. Amen.